Uh, most of you know that Karen and I are new grandparents. Uh, nearly six weeks ago, Lara was born to Alex and Luke, uh, and although I'm a little biased, we think she's pretty adorable. Uh, it's hard to imagine, but there will probably come a time when Alex and Luke will want to cause her pain. Uh, when Lara has to go through grief to experience benefit, pain before the gain. Let me give you a couple of examples how it might happen. Uh, Six-week vaccination starts next week and there will be a short stab of pain from the needle and maybe a few days of Lara feeling a little off from the effects of the vaccine. Uh, But sometimes children have to go through the short-term pain for long-term gain, for immunity from disease. Uh, Or uh, perhaps at some point in the future or she's anything like the bowels of children, more likely she'll fall and hurt herself and uh, may need stitches. And uh, Luke will hold her still while the doctor does his work and Lara will have a look of bewilderment on her face. How could her father possibly want to hurt her? Why would he do such a thing? But sometimes children have to go through short-term pain so they can get better in the long term. And there's a similar situation in today's passage. It's almost inconceivable that God the Father would want to cause his son pain. In this case, the ultimate pain, a humiliating and tortuous death. And yet that's the case. You see it there in verse 39? Jesus goes, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, where he goes to pray, to spend time with his father, to wrestle through problems, the difficulties. And you can see the problem. Uh, He tells his disciples to pray as well and then verse 42, he prays too, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The cup he's talking about is the cup of suffering that he's about to drink, his betrayal, arrest, abandonment by friends, torture, murder and probably worst of all, abandonment by his father. And he prays that if his father is willing, that the cup be taken away, that there be some other way which is not as bad as Jesus is dreading. He's asking for a plan that doesn't involve the pain. Without him having to drink a cup of suffering that's quite so deep and quite so big. But do you see what is behind that prayer of Jesus, what he's saying about his father? That it's actually God who is behind these events. That it's his father's will for Jesus to suffer pain and to suffer death. Jesus' understanding is that his father is no innocent, impotent bystander who watches helplessly as powerful men achieve their plans but that God is the one who brings these events to pass and who has the power to bring a different set of events should he want to. It's almost impossible to understand and yet there it is, God the Father's will is for the painful death of his son. And Jesus prays firstly that there might be another way that doesn't involve drinking this cup of suffering. But secondly, at the same time, he's willing, if there is no way, no other way, uh, he's willing to see the plan through. 
He's willing to drink the whole cup to the last drop. And so he prays, yet not my will but yours be done. And even though his father's mind is decided, he answers Jesus' prayer, I believe. Verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood. Uh, The anguish of a son wrestling with the will of a father to cause him pain. And yet at the same time, a father who is concerned enough for his son to provide comfort and strength to help him see that pain through. And I wonder whether that angel is not the father answering yes to Jesus. A means by which the cup of suffering might be reduced, if not removed. The angel is the father's uh, means to help him, strengthen him, reduce the cup of suffering. But I guess we're still left with the question, aren't we, why? Why would the father will for his son to endure such suffering? Same question a child has in her eyes as her father holds her still so the doctor can stitch her wound. Why? Well, let's rule out some possibilities. The first thing is that the suffering isn't because Jesus deserves it. This is no act of discipline from a harsh father on a disobedient child. The testimony of scripture all the way through, is that God the Father is overwhelmingly pleased with his Son. Uh, Luke 3.22, Jesus begins his public ministry. He he comes to be baptised and we read, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I still remember, I was about 16 or 17 when my dad said that he was proud of me. I still remember where it was when he said it. They're amazing words, aren't they? I'm well pleased with you. God the Father expressing his love and pleasure for his son. And nothing changed through the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was like us in every way, yet never sinned. The only human ever in every thought and motivation, every action and desire, always perfectly aligned to his Father's will. The only human ever fully reflecting God's image. So whatever the reason the Father willed to punish his Son, it wasn't because Jesus deserved it. The second possibility we can rule out is that this was somehow God's plan B. No, this was no last minute, second best strategy to cope with an unexpected outcome. It's not that God has been surprised and has to make things up as he goes along. It wasn't that God was in the beginning hoping humanity would live obediently and then was, oh no, look what's happened. They've sinned. What am I going to do about that? And then he has to come up with a plan to deal with it. It doesn't work like that. It's been his plan since the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time. For example, let's look at Isaiah 53, a prophecy God gave Isaiah about 700 BC, a prophecy very clearly referring to Jesus. 
predicting what he would accomplish seven centuries before Jesus was born. So look, for example, at verse 5. But he, that's Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jump down to verse 9. He, Jesus, was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Despite having done nothing wrong, That was God's will, God's purpose. Way back then at the time of Isaiah and even before that, it's always been the plan. So what's going on? If it's not because Jesus deserves it, if it's not because it's an unexpected outcome that demands a plan B, then why would it be God's will to crush his son? Well, these verses give us some of the answers, don't they? See up there in verse 6? Jesus may have done nothing wrong, but that's not the case with us. Each of us has done wrong. Each of us has turned to follow a path of our own choosing, whether it be a moral path or an immoral path. We've each turned aside to our own way, like stupid sheep who wander all over the mountainside rather than follow their shepherd. It's rebellion, it's pride, it's stupidity. It's thinking we know better than God. All of it is what the Bible calls sin and all of it, God says, deserves his justice, his punishment, death and separation from him. That's what we all deserve and yet it's not what we all receive. See, here it is in Isaiah 53. We don't all receive it. Verse 5 talks about someone else who receives it instead. There was a substitution made. The super sub comes comes on and we get to leave the field. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. God's justice demanded death. But instead of our death, God chose to offer a substitute the only acceptable substitute, the only human who never deserved to die for his own rebellion. And God chose to accept that death as punishment for our sin, in our place, to bring us peace. God replaces our dirt and guilt and waywardness and pride with the purity of Jesus and then punishes Jesus as if he was guilty. That's the reason God wanted his son to die, so that we might live. But it doesn't really answer why. Why would God do that? One reason is because God and Jesus both knew that the death was only temporary. It was only a stepping stone. It was not the end. And it's here in Isaiah 53. 
Have a look at verse 10, the second part of verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord had made his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Here to Isaiah, God is promising that death won't be the end for his servant Jesus. By his death, he defeats death. He's resurrected into glory to live for eternity. So for Jesus himself, there was short-term pain but long-term gain. But of course, not just for Jesus. It's for us too. We get to live because of Jesus' life. Verse 10, Jesus will see his offspring and live. His offspring is us. We are the ones that his guilt offering has paid for. The short-term pain of Jesus' death and separation achieves an eternal gain of glory and freedom for many. I wonder if Jesus wasn't thinking about these very verses on that night in the garden as he wrestled through his fears and temptation and the cup he was going to drink. These promises of victory and life and success and offspring and restoration, that's the game I'm going to see at the end of this pain. But it still doesn't answer the question, why us, why me? John 3.16 gives us the answer to that, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. There's the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why? Love. It's pretty simple really and yet at the same time incredibly difficult, of course, and costly. He loved us. He loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us and sent his only son. That's the wonderful news of Easter. That's why we get to call the day of Jesus' death Good Friday. Well, that's for Jesus. At this point in the story, that's still 12 hours away, his death. For us, it's another five days until we remember it. And so for now, I want to turn our attention to what all this means. What do we do with it? What's the so what? Well, the first thing to say is if God the Father went to such lengths to deal with sin, then your sin must be pretty serious. Your sin is far worse than you think. We're often quick to judge other people's sins and yet when it comes to our own sin, often we're pretty slow at recognising its seriousness, aren't we? We're quick to point out the, the, the splinter in someone else's eye but we fail to see the log in our own. Now, I was driving down to Goulburn a while ago on the Hume Highway and some idiot zoomed past me at about 140 kilometres an hour. I shook my head and wondered why there was never a policeman around when you needed one until I looked at my own speed and I found I was doing about 120 at which point I was glad there wasn't a policeman And that's what we do with sin, isn't it? We're quick to point out other people's sin, 
But we don't think our sin is as bad as it really is. But the reality is we all live lives in rebellion against God. We choose our own path, whether it's a moral path or an immoral path. The things we do may not seem that bad, especially when we compare it to, you know, who over there. But in God's eyes, our sin is serious enough that his son needs to die in our place. Your sin is serious. But on the other hand, you are loved. God didn't just leave us in our hole, unable to do anything, with a target painted on us. He provided a rescue. He loves us. As floodwaters swirl around your home or bushfire threatens, you will go in and grab the things you love. But God went to far greater lengths to rescue those he loves by giving us his son. Your sin is serious, but you are loved. Thirdly, so what do you do? Well, you accept a gift, don't you? You accept a gift. God has offered us a gift that we didn't earn, that we can't earn, the gift of life in his son. But like any gift, it needs to be accepted. I remember a number of years ago when mobile phones weren't you know, a small fortune to buy, mobile phone networks would offer you a replacement phone to to keep you loyal. And a while ago we were offered one. Just straight swap, all you do is extend your same contract for a bit longer and we'll give you a new phone. And sure enough, uh, three days later I got home and there was the card in the mailbox, the courier was here to deliver a parcel, there was no one to sign for it, you know what comes next, go to the post office, you can pick it up after 4.30. Oh great, I've got to go. Well, the gift had been given, but was I there to collect it? Did I have my new phone yet? Could I make calls on it? Well, no, I had to go and collect it. And that's what I did. I went there trusting that what this card said was true and that when I got to the post office there would be the phone. And sure enough, it was there. And it's a similar sort of thing with the gift of forgiveness God offers us. The gift has been offered The card has been delivered into the mailbox. Your gift is waiting for collection. All you need to do is collect it. And Christians, many of us here are the ones who have bothered to take that card and hand it over and say, yes please. Many of us haven't. Many people haven't, of course. Their card is still sitting in the letterbox. So what do you do to collect your gift? You don't take it to the post office but you take it to Jesus. John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You accept the gift by believing, by trusting, uh, trusting the work of Jesus, trusting the word of God, that Jesus is the means by which your sin can be dealt with. Trust that his death is effective. Trust that God really has forgiven us. And then we show that trust as we live for him each day with Jesus as our King. Whoever trusts has eternal life. That's all a Christian is. Many of us have done that. Many of us are doing that each day. But maybe today would be a good day for you to do this for the first time. 
I'd love to talk to you afterwards if that's something you'd like to do. I think there's at least one more so what that comes out of these verses. Uh, Fourthly, when tough times come, remember that God has a plan. God has a plan. If we are going to follow Jesus as our King who went through this sort of suffering, the Easter events show us that we shouldn't be surprised if we too will experience suffering. We shouldn't be surprised when pain, temptations and trials come our way. God does not promise that being a Christian will mean a bed of roses. In fact, he promises the opposite. In many parts of the world, you become a Christian and life becomes a whole lot tougher overnight. But if if that happens or when that happens, remember this, if God had a plan, if God willed tough times for his son, then he has a plan for you as well. Evil men can do what they want. Circumstances may seem against us but the events of Easter, the events that Jesus is going through, remind us that God is in control. He is willing all things for good and using trials and temptations to bring about that good in us. He's done it in his son and he's at work in us. Your sin is serious but you are incredibly loved. Your heavenly father is in control. Trust him. Honour him. Live for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' obedience, his willingness. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your mercy which doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Please help us to trust you and live for you. Amen.